Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, I'll be discussing utopian and dystopian science fiction with Professor Alan Weiss. Alan has been teaching at York University in Toronto since 1990. He began with a course called New Worlds for Old Science Fiction, going on to teach many more SF-related courses such as Utopian and Dystopian Literature, Imagined Societies, Utopias and Dystopias, and Dangerous Visions, Brave New Worlds, The Science Fiction Culture and Our Scientific Age. Alan is also a good friend of the Merrill Collection, having participated in panel discussions and given talks on several occasions. And here we are with Alan. Hi, Alan. Hi. How did you become interested in dystopian fiction? Maybe uh, we could start with as a reader and then as an academic. Well, it started uh, with my being a writer. Uh, I was uh, writing science fiction from an early age mm -hmm. and uh, didn't even think about becoming an academic in the field until I was given the opportunity to teach a course on science fiction at York University in 1990. The reading list was already set, and Fahrenheit 451 was one of the texts on that list. And so I got into it as a, as a prof, and then um, when you teach, you get ideas for things mm -hmm. that uh, are not directly related to what you're teaching, but are also, but also related to it, if you know what I mean. You, you get interested in side issues, and then they start to feed your teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I got interested in dystopian fiction as a separate topic from just presenting it in, in class. You know, you give the biography of the author and you uh, discuss some of the themes and symbols in the text. But then you start to think about other issues. And once you start bringing those in, then you say, hey, here's something I could raise with the class. Here's something that I could discuss with the students. Okay. Um, and I'm curious, like, with, when it comes to utopia, um, you'll tend to think of Thomas More right. um, as, as sort of the dawn of it. Um, but, you know, are, are there utopian works that predate him? And, and what would maybe, on the other side of the coin, be some of the earliest dystopian work? Well, the thing about utopia is that it was very much influenced by what Thomas More had read uh, from the ancient Greeks. Um, the Renaissance was a rediscovery of the Greek authors who focused on humanist issues and not theological ones. And that included Plato's Republic. And so the Republic became a source for more and in fact for the entire utopian tradition. Because in Plato's works, uh, the, the texts are structured as dialogues. And that dialogue structure became one of the key motifs, the key conventions of utopian literature from Thomas More on. Mm -hmm. And so if you read uh, The Republic, you'll see something that wasn't designed to uh, focus on the society itself. It's actually a discussion of what justice means. But what Plato does is to use a, an imagined society as a metaphor for justice. And uh, it's other authors who were a little more interested in the specifics of um, societies themselves um, for various reasons. 
One example of that is Lucian, who wrote about his trip to the moon so that he could meet a bunch of moon people. As you do. As you do. And they became satirical portraits of ancient Romans. And so uh, it's a text called A True History, and it's a lot of fun to read. Um, He just gets in a ship, and it sails off to the moon. And so the satirical tradition fed into the utopian one by portraying imagined societies that were reflections of actual ones. Okay, and uh, so what would be perhaps the earliest uh, dystopian works, do you think? Well, that's a difficult question because you uh, you have to decide what you consider to be a dystopia. Um, but certainly what you start to see in the early 20th century, is, or late 19th actually, uh, is the depiction of the societies of our nightmares. If utopias are societies of our dreams, dystopias are societies of our nightmares. And so, for example, you could take The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and he portrays this future world in which you have the Eloi and the Morlocks, and, the, and some people describe this as a dystopia, but it's not really what Wells was going for. This isn't a society. Hmm. It is the depiction of evolution and what we might become if we allow the, the division between classes to become entrenched biologically in how we exist. And my students all, uh, often describe this as a dystopia. And I said, well, the Eloi were, are behaving like Eloi. The Morlocks are behaving like Morlocks. This is a natural outgrowth, as far as Wells is concerned, about the, the conditions that he was living in. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as if anybody is really thinking in social terms. They're just being who they are. But you certainly start to see dystopias when you get to the 20th century. And you look at one of my favorite examples, which is The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, Mm. a story that is, to my mind, the first depiction of the Internet in science fiction. When you think 1909, you don't think that there's going to be the Internet, but there it is. But it's certainly a dystopia because everybody's in the machine. Ah, they live in these little cubicles and they communicate only through technology, through the machine and the screens that that you can see each other through in. But um, you see earlier depictions of um, an industrialized society that is imagined and may not be considered science fiction, but certainly dystopian like Dickens' Hard Times. Mm That's true. I suppose uh, while our focus is on sci-fi and fantasy because of the Merrill Collection, uh, dystopia is not limited to sci-fi and fantasy, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, You start to see uh, 19th century so-called problem novels that depict uh, the horrors of industrialization and and urbanization. But um, yeah, you wouldn't put them in the category of fantastic literature. So if dystopias are, uh, are nightmares, uh, what does it say that there seems to be so much more dystopian <laughs> writing than utopian writing and writing about dystopias uh, than dystopias? So, or, or is there perhaps a large body of underappreciated utopian work that could balance things out if only we paid attention to it? Um, there is some of that. 
Um, no, I think what happened was in the 19th century, there was a, a much more optimistic view of what science and technology could be. And some people thought that first we would learn everything. Mm -hmm. Science would teach us everything, reveal all the mysteries of nature. And second, the technology would lead to the conquest, so-called, of nature, and we would be able to control our world. Mm -hmm. And this was considered a good thing. Uh, and uh, all you needed was a, a big and, and uh, sophisticated enough machine um, to solve any problem you had, right? But then, as, as the reality of industrialization became evident, what it led to, then people started to be a lot more pessimistic about what technology would create. And that's why you have depictions of highly technological worlds in which people are dehumanized mm -hmm. and not liberated by their machines. And in fact, just the other day in my class, I showed my students the, the scene in modern times where Charlie Chaplin is going through the machine quite literally. And I said, there is the iconic image of the human in the machine, right? So if uh, dystopian fiction reflects the political, societal, you know, concerns of a specific time, would you say that gives it a limited shelf life? You know, does a book written in, you know, entitled 1984, written in 1949, uh, you know, have relevance today kind of thing? Like, you know, or, or are, there, are some dystopias more timeless than others? Well, the dystopias, like the utopias, always reflect the preoccupations of the day. Hmm. But there are certain aspects of human nature that seem to pop up in the dystopian works that I think are always relevant. And one of the key um, ideas in dystopian fiction of a particular kind, and we have to be careful here because there are two kinds of dystopian fiction. There was a shift that occurred, especially in the 1980s, right, about what a dystopia was. Mm -hmm. But in the classic dystopia of the Zamyatin's uh, We, and Brave New World, and 1984, and Fahrenheit 451, and The Handmaid's Tale, which is a direct, um, if you will, kind of parody or take on 1984. Uh, there's an attribute of human nature that we see um, attacked, criticized, and that never seems to go away. And that is our willingness to surrender our freedom for the sake of so-called, quote-unquote, happiness, mm, which security, simply means yeah. security, yeah. Having our pain, our discomfort, and the burden of choice taken away from us, so somebody else will uh, make all those decisions for us and give us a nice, yes, secure, uh, but untroubled life. And, you know, you could say, well, that's kind of passe. Nobody would, would trade their freedom for happiness or security. And yet you see what's happening around the world. You see the rise of authoritarian governments. And it's the same thing. You know, Russia had a brief moment of democracy. And then they said, no, we want to go back to the good old days of Stalin when we had a strong leader telling us what to do so we didn't have these criminals running around and we didn't have chaos, we didn't have discomfort. And other countries as well have actually selected 
uh, leaders who are authoritarian to take away all that burden of having to choose and deal with the chaos that results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose uh, the ones that last tend to be the ones rooted in themes and ideas rather than technological predictions, right? Yes. Um, I, I'm curious if we could uh, dig a little deeper on one thing you said there. I haven't heard Handmaid's Tale described as a, an almost a parody of 1984, and that sounds very interesting. Would you mind uh, digging into that a little more? Yeah, what Atwood was doing, and, and this was in 1984 or thereabouts, mm -hmm. when she wrote the book, was that she wanted to do a, a take... You, on 1984, in which she reversed the gender roles. And uh, in the conventional old-timey dystopia, uh, it would be a male protagonist who would be drawn into the revolution by a female character. This goes right back to Zamyatin's We. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people have actually read that, but it is... A glorious novel. I have, I've read it, uh, but if you wouldn't mind providing a short summary. Okay, well, it is a future in which this particular society is run on mathematical principles, and everything is made perfectly rational and predictable and uh, controlled. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, we, the characters don't, who are in this uh, society except for our supposed hero, um, are quite happy to have a completely rational, mechanical, mathematical life. Our protagonist, D-503, he, he encounters this woman who leads him into rebellion. Uh, and it was we that inspired 1984. And then 1984 inspired The Handmaid's Tale, but she said, all right, what about a female protagonist? And the so-called rebel, or the supposed rebel, or the possible rebel is male. Right, Nick, yeah. Right, and then just reverse the roles, but also deal with many of the same ideas. Do you, do you feel that dystopian fiction has maybe, uh, you know, does it, does it ever offer solutions to the problems it describes? Uh, you know, can dystopian fiction provide a happy outcome? You know, can it be an agent for positive change, or is it just like a, a harbinger of bad times ahead, uh, or potential bad times, like a ghost of Christmas still to come? <laughs> I don't think it's trying to predict this is what's inevitably going to happen. I think it's saying this is what could happen if we don't smarten up. And one thing I like about the effects of 1984 is that people now talk about something being Orwellian as a threat. So that if um, things get a little too authoritarian, mm -hmm. if somebody comes around and starts taking our freedom away, we say, that's Orwellian, that's straight out of 1984. So don't go there. And then 1984 has become our way of avoiding, we hope, yeah. certain trends that it portrays. And again, you have to go back to what this sort of fiction is all about. It's, it's speculative. It asks, what if this were the society we had? Not, this is the society we are going to have. Mm -hmm. And so it, it acts in that way of, of doing a, a thought experiment on the kind of society we could have if current trends continue or if people just aren't careful. Mm -hmm. And that way it acts, again, not as prediction, but as warning. 
There's an aspect of um, post-apocalyptic fiction yeah. I've heard criticized recently that I wonder if it also maybe applies to dystopian mm-hmm. fiction sometimes, at least more contemporary stuff, where um, not unfairly, I think, uh, a critique level that a lot of Western um, post-apocalyptic and some dystopian fiction is, it's just bad stuff happening uh, to white people that's been happening to non-white people for some time. Yeah, certainly. And in fact, um, I've heard a few... Native Canadian writers say the same line about this sort of thing, um, where they have been adopting the techniques, the motifs, the themes of science fiction, fantasy, dystopian, post-apocalyptic fiction, saying, you want an apocalypse? We've had one. Yes, I, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it said. I've, I've been recently had reason to be speaking with Inuit writers, uh, and, they, and yeah, I've, I've heard it said often. Uh, we're three hundred years or four hundred years into our post-apocalypse. Like exactly, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You want an alien invasion? We've had one of those. You know, some beings from a technologically superior civilization showing up on and 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 taking over. It's true, and. The post-apocalyptic stuff has a close relationship to dystopian. And in fact, it was one of the things that led to the change that you notice in the age that I referred to earlier. Mm. Uh, Dystopias used to be primarily authoritarian. And then when people started to worry about the rise of big business over big government, then the cyberpunks and others started to portray uh, future dystopias not as authoritarian but as anarchic. Mm-hmm. And then you'll go out there and, and the best you can manage is to survive and you have to be just as bad as everybody else to do that. Um, would there be, um, like, I, I think of the Marrow Thieves as a recent work, coming back to uh, Indigenous People's Reaction. Yes, uh, to, absolutely. Would there, would there be any other works uh, like that that you might recommend to our listeners so they can go outside of the, the traditionally white canon of dystopia? Yes, um, Bob Gishig Rice's novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow. And that's a uh, post-apocalyptic um, novel that's portraying things from a Native perspective. Mm. Um, and certainly you've got other texts out there, um, the stories of Drew Hayden Taylor that sometimes portray this sort of thing. And, and, yeah, these, these provide you with a different perspective. So unless you've been living in a cave with your eyes closed and your fingers in your ears for the last, like, 15 years, um, you've probably noticed there has been an explosion, uh, primarily in the YA department of dystopian fiction, um, other than perhaps, you know, oh boy, geez, have you seen the news lately? Would hmm. you have any feelings uh, or comments about why that might be and why in particular uh, in the YA category? I think it appeals to uh, a general sense among teenagers uh, that the world is going to hell. They've got good reasons to believe that, but it's often been true, Um, the whole disaffected youth idea. It's a good way to blame, quite rightly, the earlier generations for bringing us to this point. I have to say that some of what I've encountered in the YA category sounds so dark, I can't imagine reading that as a teenager. But it seems that you want to appeal to what might be a cynical generation or a cynical age group 
and uh, it's it's designed to avoid being too namby-pamby or Pollyanna about the present and the future. I, I do worry that it might inspire a, a pessimism that would not be healthy. But if it has inspired something else, which is a determination to avoid things like disastrous climate change and uh, nuclear war or other forms of, of war, uh, then more power to it. It may well have, have opened young people's eyes to the need to be politically active. Mm, yeah, well, you know, as you're saying that, you're, you're, you're tying into a question I was going to get to, so I may as well go to it. Um, more and more in recent years, I've been seeing, as much as that trend infection uh, I just mentioned exploded, also, uh, of course, you're going to get a backlash to any big trend. Uh, mm. You know, uh, I've seen um, Neil Stevenson and the Hieroglyph Project, uh, which for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, uh, in 2011, I think it was, Neil Stevenson gave a talk at MIT about how he felt that we, you know, he said basically, we've done it, we've done dystopia, we're good, thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> we need to we need to do some things that are going to inspire big projects. We need we we know that there's a connection between science fiction and and, and generations of engineers and what they try and do. Yes. You know, we want it. So his, his his was more on the big project section uh, than a utopia per se, but uh, he definitely wanted to push away from that, and, and um, that led to the creation of the Hieroglyph Project. This tie in between MIT and various authors, including himself, which led to an anthology, the Hieroglyph Anthology, which I strongly recommend. By the way, mm. uh, you've also seen things uh, like. Well, to stick with MIT, they have their 12 Tomorrows um, short fiction sci-fi anthologies, and the the 2018 one uh, was the first one I've seen that specifically had said in their remit, no dystopias, please, thank you, which is something I'm seeing uh, in other anthology submissions more and more, like, we're we're good, thank you. Uh, And this all leads, I guess, to my my question, which is... um, you know, can dystopia be an ultimately harmful thing, you know, or uh, is that maybe a, a necessary concern? No, I think it's, it, it is a danger when you start to make people feel hopeless or you start to reaffirm the pessimism that they already have and make it seem as if the proposed possible future is the inevitable one and you, you, you destroy people's willingness to think in utopian terms. This is a a concern that has been expressed, actually, that when you say the word uh, utopian nowadays, that people think of it as meaning something that is impossible, airy-fairy, there's no way anybody's ever going to achieve that, and so we shouldn't think in a utopian way Mm -hmm. because only naive people uh, think in a utopian way. And in fact, I brought this up again in class where I said people have been rejecting utopia in recent years because they think that it's insufficiently sophisticated. However, there was a time when having health care for all was considered a utopian idea. A time when public education was considered a utopian idea. That these ideas and, and the equality between the sexes And, well, no, these are either achieved or achievable, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with thinking about how we can make the world a better place, not how it could possibly be a worse place, because that's how we go about making things better. Mm -hmm. And when you start to give up, uh, when when, um, your, your cynicism is reinforced every time you crack open a book, 
um, you know, you, you make it harder to achieve the things that we want. And I think there are certain things that we do want, and we should go out and make it happen, or make them happen. And and uh, if you call that utopian, fine. I'm 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 good with that. That doesn't mean impossible. Mm -hmm. um, do, do, I mean, of course, again, hard to give a definitive answer uh, unless you're a time traveler. But do you feel <laughs> that uh, someone in 1949 reading 1984, perhaps? Uh, were they to get a glimpse of our present, would they would they see you know a utopia or at least a, a partial <laughs> utopia? I think that they would be, first of all, surprised by some of the things that have happened, because again, 1984 was a reflection of contemporary concerns about totalitarianism and about um, the willingness of people to stop thinking. Mm -hmm. um, technology as an inherent danger uh, I don't think would have been a preoccupation of theirs and they wouldn't have thought about that as being the biggest threat. Um, you know, in that sense, uh, the machine stops is in some ways uh, a, a more perceptive prediction. We are descending into, um, or have descended into, a bit more of an authoritarian mindset in certain parts of the world. But the pervasive nature of technology and what it's doing to people may be a bigger overall problem Mm -hmm. than that authoritarianism. I think people are starting to get tired of it in places that have had democracy and may want that democracy back. Uh, but um, I think the people in 1949 um, would never predict the end of the Soviet Union, certainly not that way. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they would have assumed that if the Soviet Union was going to disappear, it would be a, at, at the base of a, of a mushroom cloud. So, okay, so would you say, do you feel there's any new ground being covered in the genre? What black writers and native writers are doing, from Nalo Hopkinson to Taylor to Rice, um, they would be seeing a different perspective on, on what the future could hold and I think you're right that there has been a shift to, um, to expand the vision of the future so that it's more inclusive and that it's more of a, of a different way of thinking about what society could be like from what we have seen from the traditional Western voices. Hmm. Uh, are you familiar? Uh, I know one thing on my list to, to check out as soon as I can is to see what there is even available by way of, uh, you know, Pacific Asian uh, in general, but specifically Chinese uh, dystopian science fiction, given uh, what's going on there, and particularly how there are laws about what, or I'm sure there are laws or mores, actually, I should look into it, but certainly restrictions yep. on what can be published. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, have, you, have you got a line on that uh, in any way? I don't have first-hand knowledge of okay. it, but I've heard other people talking about the exciting things that have been done 
uh, in authoritarian countries, uh, one way to say radical things is by couching those things in science fictional terms. And there are people out there who know far more about Chinese science fiction than I ever will, um, who say that that's what's happening, that the science fiction writers are exploring those potential societies um, as a way of, of challenging authority uh, and doing so in a manner that won't lead to arrest. Mm. And so I'd love to look at all of that. I would really like to explore that too. Do you feel that perhaps we need to either move past this genre for a while or take a break from it? Well, as you've been saying, the, the, there's a greater emphasis in the genre on providing optimistic visions. And in fact, there was one anthology that came out a few years ago. I forget the name of it right now, but the editors said, we want optimistic science fiction stories. We want to go back to the days of the 1950s when you could still get optimistic SF. During the golden age, it was just taken for granted by most writers that the future would be, at the very least, cleaner yeah. than the present. Uh, and and I think that there has become there has developed a fatigue, especially when the dystopian post-apocalyptic visions have been so repetitive. And I would actually, uh, you know, if I wanted to get um, giggles and nods from my students, I would say that, and, and the two, by the way, coalesced. Mm -hmm. Post-apocalyptic visions, what would happen after the nuclear war, and more recently, the climate disaster, uh, and the dystopian worlds that people portrayed, they started to, to come together. And that's why you saw this anarchic view rather than the, the authoritarian one. That we'll all be blown to hell. There will be no government, and we'll run around, right? And I would describe to my students the 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 stereotypical or conventional uh, post-apocalyptic scene: the guy with the funny hair, riding around on his uh, vehicle that might not look like today's car, right? And a whole bunch of punk-looking people with guns. Yeah, Mad Max Fury Road. Exactly, yeah. and everybody copying that mm -hmm. that that image. And how often can you see that? And of course, it's going to lose effect over time because, ah, oh, there's that again. Mm. And it, it becomes a shoot 'em up rather than a thoughtful um, depiction of a possible future that we don't want. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe the answer is to try and just be more thoughtful <laughs> in how we write these things. Exactly. Be more thoughtful, than, uh, um, bring in um, other people because it is true that it has been dominated by um, whites who, who, who uh, you know, portray futures in which minorities may not be there at all or have certain, again, cliched roles. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, let's, let's be more thoughtful but, and, 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 yes, be more balanced. Mm -hmm. In my research for this uh, and, and for my own writing over the last while, uh, in looking to how we can move past, you know, or what can we can do that's new and positive without being uh, hopelessly naive or whatever, yeah. uh, I, I have very recently been encountering terms that are, they're too young to say if they're going to hang around or be useful, but I'm intrigued by them and I'd like to run a couple of them by you. Sure. Um, get your thoughts. Uh, one I've seen shot more than once, and there is a manifesto to go with it is Mutopia. 
uh, mute, mute as in change or motion kind of thing. Uh, you know, the definition I have here is uh, of a mutopia. Societies and futures that are receptive and responsive instead of resistant to change, evolution, shifting needs. Finding one's place in that reality with joy and fluidity and flexibility. Um, and that really stuck with me because I do tend to think of uh, either utopias or dystopias as being fairly static yes. uh, and resistant to change. I mean, utopia by definition, dystopia, maybe things are getting worse, but that's not being flexible. That's just things getting worse. Um, you know, and I wonder what a, what a utopia could be as a, as, a, as a satisfying narrative. You know, I think that'd be kind of neat. What do you think? Well, it's funny because when... Um when we went from the 19th to the 20th centuries, utopias already did start changing in the sense that they became more dynamic. H.G. Mm. Um, Wells wrote a modern utopia long after other people had stopped writing utopias. And one criticism he had of 19th century utopias um, like Looking Backward and News from Nowhere and um, a couple of others, uh, was that they were too static. And so he wanted to portray a utopia that was more dynamic. And a modern utopia is a, a utopia that changes over time. Was that The Sleeper Awakes? Or? No, that's, oh. it's called A Modern Utopia. Oh, it was published me. <laughs> in 1920. 1920, possibly, maybe 1925, but one okay. of those. And, um, and yeah, it was about a society that, as he recognized, was inevitable, changes over time. There is no single set utopian system. And, and here's part of the story, and, and when I read about this, I thought, oh, damn, we did screw that up. Um, a lot of critics were c stating that the utopia basically died in 1900, hmm. except for this occasional thing like a modern utopia, right? And what they left out of the story was the feminist utopias. Uh, and you look at uh, Herlan by Gilman, and you look at some of the utopias that came out in the 1970s. These were dynamic. Mm -hmm. These were not, here's our perfect society, it's set in stone, and it doesn't have to change, and therefore it never will. These were dynamic utopias. And so this idea of the utopia is not completely new, but I can understand why people would want to say, yeah, well, utopias are still possible, but they don't have to be static. Mm -hmm. uh, to tie a bow on this episode, uh, we'll go into one other one, which I rather like, uh, in part because it's so simple. Um, a protopia, which uh, the definition I have here uh, for protopia is a state that is better than today, uh, better than yesterday, although it might only be a little better. You know, it's, it's something much harder to visualize. Uh, and, and how many, you know, sci-fi works do you see uh, w with worlds that are both plausible and desirable? You know, just incrementally better, new problems <laughs> coming along with the yeah. new improvements. Okay. But just kind of what it seems like we tend to get in life <laughs> yeah. is, you know, maybe in a way we're kind of living in a protopia, certainly, compared to, um, you know, that hypothetical uh, person reading 1984 in 1949. Yeah. But what does a, t a protopian text look like, I wonder? Is it, is it just, just looking five minutes ahead and <laughs> trying to extrapolate from the news? Or could it be something still quite wildly different, but a little better? <laughs>
Well, it sounds like uh, what people want to do with utopias was what Gibson and company wanted to do with dystopias, which was to show the near future and then just small changes that, that can make a huge difference. I mean, I could see that. I, you just look at something like the Me Too movement. Boy, did that radically change things in some ways mm -hmm. in terms of our consciousness mm -hmm. um, and perhaps in people's behavior and, and awareness. And, and um, I can see that sort of thing being um, a very interesting area for fantastic fiction that you could say, all right, well, what if we took care of this particular problem? What would be the, the ramifications? How would it spread like ripples in a pond? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being with us today, Alan. It's, it's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.